Thank you for downloading and welcome to Take Orally, the emergency medicine podcast recorded at Dream, Queen's Medical Centre, Nottingham. In this episode, we'll be discussing hyperemesis gravidarum. As ever, all information is correct at the time of recording. Any guidelines mentioned are correct for Nottingham University Hospital's NHS Trust. Other trust guidelines may vary. All views and opinions are the speaker's own. Hello, my name's Jamie. I'm one of the teaching fellows in emergency medicine. Um, And I'm Anna. I am one of the specialist registrars in obstetrics and gynaecology. Okay, so uh, we're now on to the second part, uh, maybe The Godfather 2, we might beat the, the first film. Um, I won't make Star Wars references. Nope, no Anna idea what you're talking about. I haven't seen Star Wars, just like Phil <laughs> the other week. Um, so um, we're now looking at uh, vomiting in early pregnancy. Yeah. Uh, Anna, and um, certainly I remember when my mum was pregnant with my little brother, um, how ill she was with, with the morning sickness and vomiting. Yeah. Um, so how common is, is the symptom of vomiting in early pregnancy? How common do you think it is? Common. Yes. <laughs> it's really common. So, in fact, uh, eight, about 80% of women will have some degree of nausea or vomiting in early pregnancy, and it's called morning sickness. Mm. Um, that doesn't actually generally mean that it happens in the morning. So my sister actually had her morning sickness in the evening, so we called it evening sickness. But some degree, um, essentially, of, um, of nausea or vomiting is common in pregnancy. And we see and we see it a lot, basically. Okay, I think I remember the um, Duchess of Cambridge. They had to reveal she was pregnant, wasn't she? She was rushed into hospital. Exactly, but actually, probably with her, um, she probably did have more hyperemesis gravidarum. So there's mm. a, a difference between women that have, you know, a bit of morning sickness, uh, which is kind of quite controllable. Uh, these women generally actually feel quite well. They may only vomit maybe once or twice a day, um, and they manage to eat and drink, they keep themselves well, well hydrated. Whereas actually when we're talking about someone that has hyperemesis gravidarum, um, these women you know, vomit continuously almost. Um, it's so profuse they're unable to keep anything down. They become dehydrated, um, they become um, ketotic, and they may have some kind of biochemical derangement, so renal disturbance mm. for example. Um, and so that's how we kind of differentiate between the two. Mm. Um, the other thing that women with hyperemesis gravidarum can have is weight loss. So it's such significant vomiting. Um, mm. And that's what we're kind of more worried about. Um, but we do see, obviously, people deal with things in different ways. It's not nice to be sick. Uh, the pregnancy should be a nice time. And actually some women, they do feel really quite awful, even mm. if we couldn't really say they, they had hyperemesis. Um, so we do see a lot of women that do come in with like severe morning sickness, even if th- they haven't really got hyperemesis in terms of the dehydration or the weight loss, for example. So is there an official definition of, of how to define hyperemesis gravidarum? Yeah, so basically, so it's vomiting um, in pregnancy mm. that is significant enough to cause dehydration, ketosis or weight loss um, or biochemical kind of derangement. Um or you could sometimes, you know, say if they're being sick, like, multiple times in the day. Um, and sometimes that kind of comes under that definition. It's not an exact science, I don't think. You can't necessarily very easily say, yes, this woman has um, hyperemesis and then this woman doesn't. Mm. Um, there's a bit blurred lines, I suppose, between the two. Okay. 
And um, obviously, apart from being pregnant, are there any risk factors for developing hyperemesis? Like, you know, if a lady's had it in a previous pregnancy, is she at more risk in a subsequent one? Or um, yeah, so people who have had severe hyperemesis in the past or severe vomiting, then they would be at risk of, of getting it again. Um, women that have a multiple pregnancy, then they are higher risk of having severe vomiting or hyperemesis. Um, it's generally linked with conditions where, or you know, situations where the, the pregnancy hormone, the beta HCG, is higher, mm. which you can obviously imagine is the case in a multiple pregnancy. Um, but it does seem to be kind of a bit of a, um, a bit of a personal thing um, between people, and obviously, and how people deal with that as well. Mm. Um, so there's a big psychological element to it. Um, you know, obviously, you know, if you feel really sick, then sometimes you can kind of make yourself sick and then mm. that can perpetuate because you become a bit dehydrated you feel a bit more sick you don't eat anything you mm. feel a bit more sick and it becomes then a bit of a cycle and I think some people uh, get themselves maybe into that cycle mm. a bit better than others but certainly for some women there's absolutely nothing that they can do about it it's just you know an awful thing they absolutely mm. can't control it they're just being sick so often <laughs> yeah yeah I've, I've mostly patients with it and it's just recurrent vomiting and mm. they do look so poorly and you feel so sorry for them. Mm-hmm. Um, so I suppose we, we've talked just a bit about this complication. I suppose those are the, the similar complications for anybody with a dehydration or severe vomiting. There's a, your, ache, your renal function and uh, general dehydration as well. Are there any risks for the developing fetus? Um, not really. So... Unless the hyperemesis was like, you know, so dramatically severe that we, you know, maybe we were thinking that we had to put the lady on TPN, for example, Mm. which is really very rare. Um, The babies tend to actually develop quite well. Um, I often, I say to the students, they are um, the best parasites in the world. Um, And not that we would obviously... How romantic. Not that we would call a lady's lovely developing baby a parasite, but essentially they're, you know, completely adapted to take absolutely everything that they need. Yeah. And so they and they do take everything they need from the mother, and the mother will really worry about that. You know, if she's she's skipped one breakfast, you know, even one meal, um, she'll be desperately worried that you know the baby won't be getting everything. But actually, the baby will will get everything, especially in those very early stages um, of pregnancy, which is when we're talking about you know people having hyperemesis. It's generally happening in the first trimester. Mm. Um, so we've got our lady in, uh, she's in the emergency department, she's come in and vomiting. Um, what investigations uh, would you want the clerking doctor to do? Um, so I think she should be having obviously a baseline set of blood tests, including so a full blood count like you mentioned, and a U- UNE, so we want to check her renal function. Um, we often check a, a liver function test. Um, sometimes we find that... Um, you know, there can be other conditions which present with vomiting, so some hepatitis, for example, that would be very unusual, mm-hmm. but ruling out other causes of vomiting, because essentially hyperemesis does become, it's the most likely diagnosis uh, when someone's, you know, significantly vomiting in pregnancy, but it is a bit of a diagnosis of exclusion, there's not one test that you could do that definitely said, yes, this is hyperemesis, so we do things like, yeah, LFTs to rule out other causes, although you do find that, you know, minor derangement in LFT you see quite commonly in someone that's vomiting profusely and that will likely get better when it settles. Um, sometimes we do a beta HCG um, 
like I said, if you're quantifying the V to HCG, sometimes if it's very high, mm. um, then that can be important. But that tends to be, uh, we might kind of add that on as a later test, actually thinking about it, after maybe we've done an ultrasound scan, which mm. we can come to later. Um, we might do a calcium level. Um, sometimes hypercalcemia can present with vomiting, especially if someone's become come recurrently. We want to make sure that that's not an issue. Um, the lady needs to have a urinalysis. Mm. Um, we expect if somebody is significantly dehydrated, ketotic, then they have ketones in the urine. So that's like a marker, essentially. Mm. And that's something that we'll kind of often do uh, daily when we're treating women as well to see it, how well that's resolving as like a marker of how well she's doing. Get her out of that ketotic state. Yeah, absolutely. Um, what other investigations would we do for these women? Um, Make sure they're pregnant. Do a pregnancy test. <laughs> I suppose we should have done that first, actually. Um, so we assume that they're pregnant, but obviously doing a pregnancy test um, just to be sure that they're not here and they're actually not pregnant. They've just got some other cause of vomiting. Mm. You wouldn't want her coming in under the, the care if she wasn't pregnant. No, then that doesn't it uh, reflects badly on the <laughs> admitting doctor when uh, <laughs> yeah, that, turns, that, turns out that she's actually that, not pregnant at all. That would be a bit awkward. <laughs> okay, so... Um, so we're happy she's pregnant, first and foremost. We're happy that this is uh, a hyperemesis uh, picture. Um, so then obviously then moving on to our management of our lady. Um, fluids, antiemetics, but is, th is there a particular yep. regime in, in hyperemesis? Yeah, so we obviously have to remember that the lady is pregnant. Um, and so there are... Um, certain things that we want to avoid. We don't want to use, you know, antiemetics that we, we know are either teratogenic, as in they can cause fetal abnormalities, or maybe we, we don't really know exactly what their safety profile is. So mm. there are antiemetics that we use kind of commonly, and we believe them to be safe in pregnancy because we've been using them for a long time and they don't seem to have any adverse effect on the developing baby. Mm. So they would be things like cyclozine or, or uh, promethazine or stematil. We're starting to use ondansetron more and more. Um, although it's kind of out, out of a license uh, for use in pregnancy. Mm. Uh, they're the kind of the common antiemetics, but we have like gui guidelines within every hospital that will have um, mm. regimes as to which antiemetic is first line in that particular unit. Um, the general idea is that you use a, an antiemetic for a while, see if it makes any difference to the nausea and vomiting, and if that fails to work, you then cross that off and you mm. use one more. So you're not using multiple antiemetics at once, mm. you're uh, avoiding polypharmacy, just having one at a time. Um, Fluids-wise, um, the key thing is that we obviously give some um, in the initial instance you want to kind of rapidly rehydrate these are generally young kind of healthy women um, they're not say 70 80 year old people that you're going to you know, put into pulmonary edema um, in most cases so actually we can afford to kind of rapidly rehydrate them and so a liter over uh, an hour or a couple of hours is perfectly fine um, and something like Hartman's or normal saline is absolutely fine for that um, the thing that we tend to avoid is uh, giving them dextrose mm. um, and not for the reason that you think oh actually that's not a very good rehydration fluid actually it's because um, dextrose is associated with precipitating something called Wernicke's encephalopathy which is thiamine deficiency mm. um, and women who have been vomiting profusely can have deficiency of thiamine and by giving the, the dextrose we can precipitate that mm. um, 
So we would generally just avoid basically giving dextrose and stick with our normal saline or, or Hartman's. Um, the absolute fluid regime would then be tailored depending on your blood results because mm. it's not that unusual for someone to be a bit hypokalemic. So giving normal saline with potassium, for example, is you know quite common and then tailoring that depending on what her user needs are doing over time. Poor dextrose, it gets such a bad rap. I know. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> uh, are there any other medications that should be given? Um, so, thinking about um, kind of general pregnancy things, so this is someone in early pregnancy, they're generally less than 12 weeks, so giving folic acid is really important. It's like that general kind of supplement that mm. most women have. Um, a lot of women will complain of uh, heartburn. So either something like Gaviscon or Mucogel um, or even Ranitidine. Mm. Uh, sometimes some of the PPIs like Omeprazole we might have to use if they have significant reflux symptoms. Uh, that can make them feel more sick. So it's a good idea to kind of get on top of that. Um, the other thing is bearing remembering that they are maybe in hospital, they're dehydrated, they're not very mobile mm. um, and they're pregnant. So actually they have a lot of risk factors for having a VTE. So it may be that just um, encouraging them to mobilise and hydrating them and, t and TED stockings, but some of these women, especially if they're an inpatient, would require low molecular weight heparin, so prophylactic mm. uh, low molecular weight heparin, and that's safe to give in pregnancy. Um, what other medications? Uh, thinking about the vernicus encephalopathy that I mentioned before, mm. um, because of this thiamine deficiency, it may not be important if someone's just come once and you know we treat them and actually they're fine. But certainly if they come recurrently, mm. you would want to think about replacing that either orally if they could have oral uh, medication, or by giving them Pabronex intravenously to replace the thiamine and prevent them getting that that complication. Okay. Uh, I suppose um, if we rehydrate our lady, she's feeling a lot better, she's managing to eat and hold things down, she's back yep. to looking blooming rather Great. than feeling ill. Uh, what follow-up uh, is required then for, our, for the lady um, going forward? Um, so I'll just mention one thing, so while she's kind of normally in, we would generally arrange an ultrasound scan for mm -hmm. her. Um, one, to just confirm viability of the pregnancy, also to confirm that it's not um, a multiple pregnancy. Um, or to confirm it's something like a molar pregnancy and I mentioned that in a pre in the one that we did uh, with bleeding and pain mm. before um, a molar pregnancy is basically an abnormality of the placental tissue it means that generally the beta HCG level is very high so it can cause vomiting mm. and it can just present it can present with bleeding but it can present just with significant vomiting so you'd want to kind of rule that out obviously if that was the case then um, you would that would be completely different kind of follow-up and management which we're not going to go into now if someone just had a kind of an ongoing normal healthy pregnancy and she was feeling much better then actually they don't really need that much follow-up provided that they have actually just been treated quite rapidly mm. um, then most of these women you know with kind of um, general advice making sure that they kind of eat little meals little and often eating first thing in the morning can sometimes make a difference so like getting women to take food to bed with them so they've got something like a biscuit that they then can eat in the night if they wake up or mm -hmm. if they get you know, first thing in the morning that can make the like stave off some of that sickness feeling mm -hmm. um making sure that they obviously keep well hydrated and actually by the time people get to between you know, 12 and 16 weeks it will generally settle down on its own mm. um, and so actually they can just carry on with the care of their, their midwife. 
Um, sometimes if it's been you know sick, really severe morning sickness then it's necessary perhaps for these women to be seen through the pregnancy mm. um, so they might need to be referred to consultant-led care to be seen in the antenatal clinics um, especially if you know they had any complications of their hyperemesis um, or if they um, were continuing to have vomiting if it didn't settle then obviously they would need that continued ongoing care throughout. Mm. So is, is there the risk then that this episode of hyperemesis is settled but they may reattend then to the emergency department oh, or to yeah, the, the obstetrics team during their pregnancy? Yeah so it's not um, that unusual for that to happen you know you make them feel a lot better because you rehydrate them you give them intravenous antiemetics um, and then they're absolutely fine they mm. feel tip top but then actually when they go home you you obviously you, and sometimes even with the best will in the world it then they start vomiting again they then can't keep the antiemetics down they then get rehydrated they then feel worse and it becomes another cycle so women kind of coming recurrently is not that unusual um the, the only other thing i kind of wanted to mention about hyperemesis yep, sure. is some of the um the complications that can ensue so some of them we've kind of touched upon when i was, I was talking about the medications that we would use um i think the thing about hyperemesis is that it's you kind of because you see women coming again and again and most of the time you like treat them a bit and they get better it's a bit frustrating actually uh, hyperemesis um you can't like just do one thing to make it kind of completely better so it's more frust- frustrating for the patient but quite frustrating for the doctor mm. um one thing i always tell like the students is it can be quite a, can be quite bad it can be very severe it can cause you know significant biochemical abnormalities kind of mentioned about the hypokalemia can cause abnormalities of sodium as well um, and obviously those things can have then significant complications renal failure if that was to develop that can have you know significant long-term complications vernicus encephalopathy mm. um, all of those things we've mentioned and then the last thing um, is a patient I saw um, who had come in with vomiting she was about 13 weeks it had been recurrent admissions um, and she kind of just kept retching and then she developed this kind of big, kind of swollen neck and swollen on the side of her face. And she was seen and you know, someone said, well, maybe it's an allergic reaction, but she didn't have any rash. Um, and she wasn't particularly swollen around the lips or tongue. She just, on one side of her face, she was just very swollen. And it was all very odd. So it kind of went on for a bit. And then um, it transpired eventually that she had actually ruptured her esophagus. Wow. Um, <laughs> so we hear about that, don't you, through forceful vomiting. And okay. you... Was it a Boerhaave syndrome? Yeah. yeah. And she was absolutely <coughs> fine. I think it was quite minor. And so what we were basically seeing in her neck was like a surgical emphysema. Mm. Um, and her, we did a chest x-ray for her and she had pneumomediastinum. It's very interesting. Um, and she was fine, so we can say it's interesting. Because, you know, obviously sometimes people with Boerhaave syndrome incredibly mm. unwell. Um, and so we shouldn't forget that even though we see it really commonly and it's normally treated and actually normally women are completely fine, there can be quite significant complications um, if it's not kind of treated in a timely manner. That was the Take Orally Hyperemesis Gravidarum podcast. You can find us on Facebook and Twitter where we'll put up links to any guidelines mentioned and you can contact us to suggest topics you'd like to see covered in future episodes. For more information on education and research opportunities within emergency medicine, acute medicine and major trauma, you can find NUH Dream on both Facebook and Twitter.